welcome so Vishal Agarwal ji from Minnesota uh, to uh, start the session. Of course, as I already mentioned, uh, Vishal himself is a great luminary in the field of uh, the history, specifically, uh, you know, his work on rebutting the Aryan invasion theory. And I'm really looking forward to this interaction uh, between Vishal Agarwalji and uh, Michelle. And I'm really glad that uh, Michelle requested Vishalji to be on this uh, session. I know they've been collaborating for a very long time, and I am sure this session is going to be fantastic. Thank you. Um, thank you for the brief uh, introduction. I hope you can all hear me correctly. Uh, it's a delight to have a conversation with uh, Padma Shri, Mr. Danino, on this topic of the Aryan myth, which has been studied for scholarly and not so scholarly reasons for 150 years. Uh, actually, one and a half hours is too short a time to discuss all the facets of it, but we'll try to make it uh, as best as we can. So, uh, you know, to uh, set Vishal, I'm sorry to interrupt you right in the beginning, but uh, uh, I was thinking, you know, we could have a break uh, at uh, 6.30. What do you think? Do you think that's okay to have a break in the middle of the session? Oh, I'm totally fine with that. I think it'll okay. give some rest to Danino. Okay, we'll have a short break in the middle of, uh, at uh, 6.30. Thank you. Mm. Okay. Okay. So um, to set the tone, uh, the ancient world has just a handful of Bronze Age civilizations, of which the Harappan civilization is one. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it's the least understood and most controversial civilization. So uh, I would like to understand from Mr. Danino that we have the Egyptian culture, we have the Mesopotamian Sumerian civilizations, we have the Chinese, the Olmecs. What, what is so different about the Harappan civilization? Why is it so controversial? Why is it so little understood? And yet we claim that it's the only civilization which has actually continued down to the present times. Is it because we don't understand our own culture? Thank you, Michelle, and uh, delighted to have you here. And, and just call me Michelle, please. <laughs> we can, we don't have to be so formal. And uh, thank you so much for accepting my, my invitation. And uh, apologies for uh, forcing you to be, you know, up and going so early. Uh, you are in the US. Uh, I hope we have not inconvenienced you. Um, so we have now this. Uh, a session where basically it's just not the Aryan uh, issue, but we are going to discuss about, yes, the, the proto-history of, of India. And I think you've, you've asked the, the right question to start with. Um, you know, when, uh, when the Harappan civilization was discovered, let us just recall for a minute, it was 1921-22, and by 1924, it was understood that, uh, you know, archaeologists were dealing with something completely new. It was a new civilization of the Bronze Age, which had not yet been identified. Others had been, so Egyptian, Mesopotamian, were already known. And of course, the, the Greek, uh, Mediterranean, like Minoan, for example, uh, civilizations, which also extended to the Bronze Age. So, uh, so uh, they, they soon realized that it was very different. Uh, it was different in several ways. The first is that 
Some archaeologists found it disappointing. They were disappointed, like, you know, Mortimer Wheeler will have that famous quote about miles and miles of uh, bricks and monotony or something like that, um, or monotonous brick buildings. So they were, you see, they, they were used to the very glittering Egyptian tombs and, of course, the, the fantastic pyramids and the colossal temples with colossal statues, and there was nothing like this here. Just remnants of brick houses and more houses and more houses and a few streets and very, very few art objects compared to Egypt. I mean, there's absolutely no comparison. And very little writing also, a few seals, a few inscriptions here and there, nothing like those colossal frescoes on, on temple walls that you find in Egypt. So there was no doubt that it was extremely different in nature <clears throat> and they tried to make sense of it. And um, for a long time, this lack of spectacular finds, you know, uh, um, made it a kind of uh, marginal civilization. It was not uh, something very important to deal with. Well, it was an Indian uh, civilization. It was the beginning of, of something in India. But for, of course, for all the scholars concerned with India, it was extremely important because suddenly, before it, you see, before it, as you know very well, the most remote times were the Buddhist times, or let us say the, the Mahajanapada times, the, the times uh, 600 BC at the most, 700 BC perhaps, uh, where the, the, the Gangetic states were forming, and, uh, and this was the most remote antiquity of India that was known, except for some scattered Paleolithic tools, but then nothing was known of those Paleolithic communities anyway. So suddenly, <clears throat> India jumped 2,000 years. It was, in fact, initially 3,000 years. Those days were corrected later. Um, and, <clears throat> and then got a, a foundation in the Bronze Age, which, which whereas all the you know, Buddhist era and, and the, the, the Mahajanapadas and all that belonged to the later Iron Age. So that was, of course, a, a most important um, uh, relocation of Indian uh, beginnings. But then many questions started being asked, precisely that question which you flag of continuity. Was it really the ancestor, direct ancestor of the later Gangetic developments, uh, which are going to evolve into the classical civilization of India? And uh, then there were two schools of thought, right from the beginning. Some archaeologists said, yes, we can see signs of continuity. Uh, we can see some objects which we recognize. We can see, um, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> a typical uh, Indian customs, ornaments, for example, the anklets, uh, some kind of earrings, some kinds of um, uh, bangles, etc., which are all typically Indian. So there were a lot of features, very humble perhaps, but that did speak of Indianness in the figurines and so on. Um, but others <clears throat> were looking at the broader problem, that of the Aryan invasion, which was the dominant theory in those days, and still to some extent is, remains dominant today. Uh, but it was extremely strong in those days because it was completely racial, in the sense that this was the time of the Aryan race, uh, the very, very same Aryan race that Hitler is going to build his, his ideology upon. 
uh, that Hitler is just, you know, going to appear on the scene a few years after the Harappan civilization uh, uh, was was discovered, and uh, and then the problem is that how do you fit when the Aryan invasion theory declared that Aryans streamed into India as a new race, conquering race, and subjugated the autochthones, the, the, the you know, primitive uh, uh, populations of India, native populations of India, uh, there was obviously some readjustment to be done. Because in the early, in the old theory, the Aryan race, mighty Aryan race was bringing civilization to a totally primitive India. And then suddenly there is actually a civilization at a date older than the conventional date for the Aryan invasion, 1500 BC. And then this civilization is, is obviously there. And, and so then the Aryans now are the primitive barbarians. So the, the, there was a big switch and readjustment. They were the primitive barbarians, still conquering, still aggressive, and still from a different race, who came and you know, perhaps destroyed this civilization. Just like the, and so this was all patterned on the decline of the Roman Empire, where you had a brilliant civilization which declined, uh, maybe from within, but also from without due to barbarian invasions. And that was a very convenient model to be transposed here. And the Aryans became the barbarians who destroyed uh, the the Harappan or Indus civilization. Indus Valley civilization, as it was called then, which uh, let me emphasize is an obsolete term because we have now so many uh, sites well uh, away from the uh, Indus Valley. So so there were several issues at the same time, and we all know that there were different schools of thought. There were still a number of Indian scholars who emphasized the continuity. And there was one of them who, uh, in 1937, I think it was uh, the first uh, K.N. Dixit, if I'm not mistaken, he decided to call it the proto-Indian civilization. And in fact, had there not been a partition with Pakistan, had India remained an undivided country, it's quite possible that this would have been the term accepted uh, uh, today that we we might have called it the proto-Indian civilization. And in many ways, I think it's in a way, you know, the best term because it emphasizes this, this continuity. Um, there are two, three schools of thought. I should be very brief and, and now give you the picture today so that we understand the problem. Because, you know, we, we always try to simplify issues and we should not. The, the Aryan issue is complex. It, it touches many disciplines. It touches many theoretical problems of continuity, for example. Uh, what does it mean, continuity? What is transmitted? What is not transmitted? We do know that the cities, the Harappan cities declined towards the end of the third millennium BC. And by 1900 BC, almost all of them were no longer functional as cities. And that subtle uh, order, uh, you know, that state administration, uh, what constitutes a state was gone by 1900. So there was a discontinuity at a certain level, no doubt. And yet more and more in recent decades, a lot of archeologists um, uh, whether foreign archaeologists or Indian archaeologists emphasize also the, the, the continuity of the cultural transmission. So we have the American archaeologist, Jim Schaffer, uh, uh, 
Jonathan Kenoya, uh, and, and you know, the Anchins, the, the, the British archaeologists, and we have, of course, a, a large number of Indian archaeologists, our Doyen, Bibi, Professor Bibilal, uh, who has just turned 99 and is still producing uh, studies and books, um, and, and a whole lot of other archaeologists, Espi Gupta, Rian Mishra, uh, and many others, who, uh, who uh, uh, emphasize this continuity and additionally rejected the Aryan model. So what is the Aryan model today? Today, you know, after World War II, this race component has been dropped by most scholars. It's only a few backward scholars like D.N. Cha, for example, of, uh, of Delhi University and a few others who still view those Aryans as fair-skinned, blonde, uh, etc., by misreading some passages of the Rig Veda, as we know very well. <clears throat> uh, so mostly the racial component has been dropped. And what defendants of the Aryan model, like the Alchins were, for example, are saying is that, okay, they were not a race. They were scattered populations. We don't know exactly who they were, but they were those who brought Indo-European languages into India, and they came after the Harappan civilization. So they may not have destroyed it, they came after it, and they occupied the land and slowly, gradually, some kind of cultural fusion occurred. Their language <clears throat> became dominant, and then Indo-European languages spread, and, and, and this Aryan culture also spread. So that is the, uh, so uh, those, those who still maintain this theory of, let us say, an Aryan Migration, usually no longer an aggressive invasion, more of a peaceful migration. Uh, there are again many degrees in it. For example, <clears throat> I'm just situating the problem as briefly as I can. For example, the Alchin, Ramon Alchin, the late Ramon Alchin, who was you know, very passionate about Indian archaeology. He, he loved the uh, uh, Indian civilization. There's no doubt about that uh, aspect. Uh, Ramon Alchin was honest and recognized, therefore, the features of cultural transmission and continuity. And he even saw some Vedic elements in Harappan civilization. The Vedas, which were supposed to be the product of Aryans who would have come into India later. So, for example, there is this famous seal where you have a bull uh, mating with a prone reclining woman. And it he said it's so strikingly the Vedic theme of the union of, of the bull of heaven and the earth. So he's, he had a, a theory that some Aryans had <clears throat> entered, some Aryans had entered India uh, earlier during the Harappan times. They were not those who composed the Veda. They came to India, they um, uh, fused with the Harappans, transmitted some of their a culture, which was Aryan, Vedic, but not yet the written text, and therefore it, it, and then there was a second wave of Aryans in the second millennium BC, and those were the ones who composed the Vedas and wrote the Indo-Aryan languages. So you can see that there can be many theories. And <clears throat> when a few years ago, as you know very well, and you have highlighted it and discussed it yourself in some of your uh, uh, excellent writings, uh, when it was shown that there were no uh, you know, an, uh, anthropological signs 
of a new population coming. We have the work of uh, Kenneth Kennedy, uh, the late Kenneth Kennedy of uh, formerly Cornell University, who studied hundreds of skeletons with his various uh, students and disciples and other anthropologists, and they never found this continuity after the Harappan civilization. So there was, uh, there was uh, this, and there was continuity in cultural transmission, and also there was the fact that all these supposed signs of destruction of the Harappan cities were rejected one after another. So when this became clear, <clears throat> archaeologists started asking, why do we need the Aryans at all? As archaeologists, we are linguists. We're not bothered with the linguistic issues. We see continuity on the ground. We don't see the arrival of a new people. We don't see the arrival of a new culture. Even if we assume that the Aryans came in small groups, small settlements, moving settlements, and we can't trace them, still, there should have been different ornaments, different uh, weapons, perhaps, different tools, different um, um, you know, uh, pottery styles, different art forms, uh, still it should have left a trace, and there is nothing like that. So as you know, some of the proponents of the theory did not want to give up and went on diluting it. So we have the case of, famous case of Professor Michael Witzel of Harvard University, who, you know, was ready to dilute it to the point that when one Afghan tribe overstaying in India during the winter summer transhumans, overstaying in India, one single Afghan tribe, Indo-European speaking Afghan tribe, overstaying in India would have been enough to overturn the landscape. So my, my the, the whole linguistic and cultural landscape. So my own conclusion is that very much it boils down to a question of numbers. And this is a point I've made repeated in a few recent papers, which I think uh, uh, Srinivas has shared with our audience today, is that how many Aryans do you want? Do you want a massive migration? And there are still people like Aris Shamas wanted it to be massive because he said they, it has to be massive, the late Aris, you know, Marxist historian Aris Shama, he said it has to be massive because they have to swamp the local languages and culture, which is logical. But we are told that it need not be massive, just one small tribe is enough to overturn the entire landscape. So is that feasible? So how many do Aryans do you need to do that major switch to a new language, a new culture? So this is basically for me one, one major issue where uh, scholars are careful not to pronounce because they know it is tricky. The, the, the massive invasion, can be easily rejected on the grounds of archaeology and bioanthropology. And if it is minor, if it is small numbers, then you have to answer that question. How do you allow a small number of people? He used the word trickle-in theory, as you yourself pointed out. Trickle-in theory. How do you have people trickling into the subcontinent when we still have a lot of late Harappan cultures in place? It's not that this West northwest of India is desert. It's not desert. It is still densely populated. We have a lot of late Harappan and post-Harappan cultures, uh, uh, like, you know, painted greyware culture and then the, the ochre-colored uh, uh, ochre pottery culture and a lot of others, 
which are going to, they are named after the style of pottery, which is another theoretical, actually tricky issue. But anyway, let's not go into that. And how do you explain that these small populations, Aryan speaking, because now Aryan has taken on purely a linguistic meaning and not all cultural, but no longer racial, thankfully, even though in India, we continue in our textbooks to visualize Aryans as, as, as a race, as a distinct race. And that's uh, very shameful. But so this, this question of number is unresolved. And, um, and this is why one of the weakest points ultimately of that period. So I, I've tried to give a kind of broad canvas and um, I'm sorry if I was too long, but now you can build upon this vision. Well, I think it's interesting you mentioned how many Aryans do you need to Aryanize India? And I live right here in Minnesota, which is 83% Caucasian or white, and only one person Native American. And yet the whole state is studded with names of Native American origin. We have the Sioux Indians and the Ojibwe tribes, Minnesota itself, uh, Minnehaha Falls. And, and But in the whole of Northern India, Pakistan, we don't see a single river, a single lake, a single geographical feature which as a non-Aryan etymology. Um, so this brings me to the next uh, major topic related to this controversy. Uh, when I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s, in our textbooks in India, we used to read that the Saraswati is a mythical river. But in 1990s, all of a sudden, we shed light on what we call the Saraswati paradigm, and you've also published a book on it. Um, and interestingly, the first one to explore the Ghagar Valley area was Sir Oral Stein, more than a century back, I believe. But his writings didn't get much publicity. And when people started revisiting this Aryan invasion theory, uh, they said, well, you know, the Rig Veda talks about the Saraswati River and it's full of farmlands and towns and villages. And, and when the Indian archaeologists started re-exploring that a river in that same region, a dried up river, they found, and I think you've counted more than 2000 inhabitations. So all of a sudden, this logical question was asked, is this Ghagar River, which was supposedly the epicenter of the Harappan civilization, is it the same as the Vedic Saraswati River? So would you like to dwell on that Saraswati paradigm since you've synthesized a lot of data on that? Ah, so you have, you have put a very central question here and <clears throat> I, I have to try to sum up uh, the whole issue of, uh, of this river because it does bring a very important testimony. And it's extremely interesting that by the end of the 19th century, before, long before the Harappan civilization was discovered, there was a near complete consensus with just one or two exceptions, actually two. Otherwise, all archaeologists, geographers, topographers, um, uh, archaeologists of those times, uh, were in a consensus that this Gagar Hakra bed must be the relic of the Sarasvati of Vedic times, of the Vedic text, because they only knew the Sarasvati through the Vedic text. So in fact, the problem was this, that in the Rig Veda, Sarasvati is, is praised as a mighty river 
flowing from the mountain to the sea and, uh, and, uh, and flowing between the Yamuna and the Satlej. This is, I mean, to sum up, there's a lot more, in fact, in the Rigveda because <clears throat> there are maybe tributaries of the Saraswati, there are other things. But it's a, it's a river which flows all the way to the sea. And then in the later literature, starting from the Brahmanas in particular, we see that uh, there is a disappearance, a point of disappearance, it's called Vinashana, so loss, disappearance, sometimes Adarshana, and at that point actually becomes a point of famous pilgrimage, perhaps the first pilgrimage of all Indian traditions, that's my guess, um, where that pilgrimage consisted in starting from the point of disappearance and moving upward to upstream to the source of the Saraswati. So there is an evolution, and, and actually O.P. Bharatwaj, formerly of Kurukshetra University, authored a brilliant paper where he showed that this Vinashana point was not fixed. It kept moving upward itself. So Saraswati is receding with further and further layers of the literature until it's completely lost, completely gone. And uh, Kalidasa uses somewhere Saraswati as a symbol for loss. You know, it becomes almost a synonym. If you say Saraswati, it means loss, something that has disappeared. So, so that evolution is very clear. And in 1855, a French geographer, uh, Louis Vivien de Saint-Martin, a leading geographer of these days, was following closely explorations from British topographers. They were, you know, the British colonial authorities uh, had to make maps, precise maps for military purposes to understand their dominions. And they were very good at map making. We know that at topography. So they explored all this area uh, for also other reasons, which I've narrated in my book. So I'll not go over all details here. And they found that there was this huge dry bed uh, flowing from the Shivaliks through what is today Haryana, what is today northern Rajasthan, uh, what is today the Indian Punjab and Cholistan in Pakistan, and all the way to the Ranakash. And he found that this dry bed was between Yamuna and Setlej, as Rigveda was saying. It was quite huge in some places, and it seemed to uh, uh, testify to a, a much you know, mightier flow in some remote past, undatable, of course, in those days. And there was also a tributary still today called Sarsuti in Haryana. What is today Haryana, of course. Haryana did not exist in, in, in the 19th century. And therefore, uh, with, with all this data, uh, he was able to put together the concept that this must be the relic of the Vedic Saraswati River. And, uh, and, uh, and this was immediately adopted by Max Miller, by others, and there was no doubt at all in anybody's mind that this was the Saraswati, and the debate was closed, you might say. That was over. Problem solved. No, not quite. Why? Because the Harappan civilization was discovered. And eventually, as you said rightly, Mark Orenstein who in 1917 had authored, so let's say a, a century ago, had authored, because Mark Orenstein was not only a fantastic explorer, adventurer, archeologist, he was also a Sanskritist. Uh, you know that he left a brilliant translation of Raja Tarangini, for example. 
So, uh, so he had very good foundations in Sanskrit, and he um, authored a paper on the rivers of, of North India, where he also endorsed this identification between the Ghagar, uh, Hakra, and the Sarasvati. And uh, by the time when he was uh, uh, 78, I think, it was 1941, he decided he wanted to explore that area because in 1940, till 1940, the Harappan civilization was broadly confined to the Indus Valley and of course the tributaries of the Indus, the entire Indus plains. And therefore the term of Indus Valley civilization was justified. But there had been hunches already, even John Marshall had suspected that it must have extended further eastward. So he decided to explore uh, the region between what is today Rajasthan, where Kalibangan was already identified as a potentially prehistoric site by Luigi Tessitori, the Italian scholar, much earlier. Uh, he started from there, but he missed the Harappan nature of Kalibangan. And then on horseback and then camelback, he was 78, went into Cholistan, where he identified uh, Harappan features. So the, this raises actually a very important theoretical question. First of all, how do you define that a site belongs to a particular culture? So this is done in archaeology by you know what is known as the assemblage. Assemblage is a French word which means a collection of different things. So typically in archaeology, if you have a bit of pottery that is recognizable, some ornaments that are recognizable, some seals that are recognizable, if you have enough of variety of things that are recognizable as being similar to what you found in Mohanjo-daro or Harappa, then you will declare it to be Harappa. So that's exactly what he found and that's exactly what he declared. In a report uh, which, which mentioned the, 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 the name Sarasvati, it, it was called uh, a, tour, uh, a tour along the lost Sarasvati, something like that. Uh, and an archaeological tour, that was the title of his paper, an archaeological tour along the lost Sarasvati. So still there was no doubt that this was Sarasvati of all. But slowly, a problem grew that along this Sarasvati, this Ghagar, the sites that were found were mostly Harappan, or of much later cultures. But they were mostly Harappan. So we have a Vedic river, or rather, let's, let's now sum up the problem in a nutshell. We have a bed, dry, mostly dry. Of course, it's not totally dry. It still flows and sometimes very powerfully during the monsoon, but not a, a perennial river in any case. We have such a river which has been identified by consensus to, with, this, with the Sarasvati of Vedic literature. And what do we find? We don't find the sites of a different culture that perhaps could be identified as, as Aryan. We find Harappan, we find Harappan sites, sites of Harappan culture. So what's going on? We were told that Aryans came much later. And, and we, this river was revered in the Veda, but it is a heartland now of the Harappan civilization, the Indus civilization, which is no longer Indus Valley civilization. And by the way, there are also a few sites appearing in Gujarat and a few other locations uh, like 
northern Maharashtra, and so on. So it is expanding broadly in all directions. So the point is that now this river, when the survey of Harappan site was complete, fairly complete, by 1984, and the late Jagatpati Joshi, uh, whom I had the privilege of, of, of meeting and discussing with, uh, I've been very lucky to meet all those great archaeologists, the latest Vigupta, the, the late V.M. Mishra, and others. Um, when he published in 1984 a fairly comprehensive survey of Harappan sites, what became very clear is that you know that we have early Harappan culture, the antecedents of the Harappan cities. We don't have cities as yet. We have villages growing into towns, and then at some point, by 2600 BC or so, the towns you know, flourish as cities. It's a different concept. There is a powerful state or administration behind that, right? Uh, but by 1900 BC, they declined. So when Jagatpati Joshi published, he had a few collaborators, by the way, published his survey, it was found that in the late Harappan phase, 1900 BC onward, all the Harappan sites which occupied the heart of the Sarasvati Basin, or the Ghagar Basin, as you wish to call it, disappeared and were abandoned. They did not have a late Harappan phase. Kalimangan, for example, had a full mature phase and very thriving as a city on the edge of the Sarasvati and must have used the river as a, you know, a, a means of communication for trade in particular. And by 2000 or 1900 BC, of course, the, the radiocarbon days, as we know, are a little bit uh, fluid. It is abandoned. It doesn't have a late Harappan phase. People do not remain there at all, as they do in Harappa in Punjab. We have a late Harappan phase there. In Dholavira in Gujarat, we have a late Harappan phase. What does it mean? Late Harappan means a reversal to a rural lifestyle. People can no longer maintain this urban uh, order, which, uh, which requires you know, an administration. It requires something holding it together. That subtle thing disintegrates. So people still live in Harappa, in Dholavira, uh, as a kind of village living on the ruins of the city, but not in Kalibangan, not on any of the sites like Banawali, like Rakigari, like uh, Birana, all these sites occupying the central basin of the Sarasvati are just abandoned. So the conclusion was immediately that the river must have disappeared because that would be the major cause for people to abandon those sites. Otherwise, why should they leave? They could have continued living on the spot even in, as a rural late Harappan lifestyle, but they don't, they go, they leave. So the, the consensus was that among the archaeologists that the river must have disintegrated and this is the beginning of the disintegration that the literature portrays so well. Okay, so all is fine except the chronology because according to the chronology, Aryans, if you go by the Aryan migration theory, enter India, 1500 BC, whatever, they start composing the Vedas the Vedas worship Sarasvati as a mighty river, and this would be by 1200 BC, and it's, it's supposed to be a mighty river, and then, then only the disintegration of the river would begin. 
So we have a mismatch of something like seven, eight hundred years, which is very hard to reconcile. So how did the those who still swear by the Aryan invasion or migration theory, which has now we can visualize that it has gone through many avatars, as David Frawley rightly said once upon a time, and we can see that uh, it keeps mutating, you know, like coronavirus, it has many uh, multiple mutations. So that's what happens with the Aryan virus, if I may call it that way. And now there's a new interpretation that you see it's like this. The Aryans were actually located, worshipping the Sarasvati in Afghanistan, not here, because there is a small tributary of the Helmand River in Afghanistan, which has a cognate name with Sarasvati. It is Hakravati or something like that. You can tell us better, Vishal. You, you are more knowledgeable. And, and they worshipped the original Sarasvati there. And then they came, entered India, carried the memory of that original Saraswati, and they transferred that memory to the Gagar River uh, because they didn't want to lose that memory. There are only two problems. One is that there is no such indication in the Rig Veda. Nowhere in the Rig Veda do we have explicitly an older Saraswati and a newer Saraswati. There is just one Saraswati and only one. Two, and this is a question I asked Two years ago, Professor Rajesh Kochar, astrophysicist who wrote a book called The Vedic People, and who has maintained, the, refurbished this old theory of Afghan Saraswati, which had one or two defendants in the 19th century, especially Hillebrand, uh, the German scholar Hillebrand. So, but they were totally a, a minority position in the 19th century. Now he refurbished it. And he said, he said, you know, they came and then they, they transferred this name to the Gaga. So I asked him, Professor Kocha, tell us why the Aryans, having, wanting to preserve the name of the Saraswati, fine. They crossed the Indus. They could have given the Indus the name. They crossed the Jhelum, the Chennam, they crossed the Ravi, perhaps. It depends exactly where they cross, of course. They crossed the Bias. They crossed the Sutlej. They crossed all these rivers. They never rename them Saraswati. They wait until they come on a, they reach a dry bed because archaeology now tells us that this river was defunct. They wait and, and he himself admits in his book that Gaga was defunct by that time. So he said, you accept it is defunct and you are telling us that they cross all these rivers and they wait until they reach a defunct bed to remember this glorious Sarasvati of old. It doesn't make sense. And his answer was, and this was in Bangalore in a high profile uh, uh, event, which um, I have a paper coming out of it, which has been shared. And his answer was, Ha, I am tired. And that was the end of his answer. There was no answer. So these are the kind of paradoxes that the Sarasvati throws up. And normally, it would be simple logic to say that, fine, we have a river which declined, and therefore, the sites that we find along the, the, the bed of the river while it was thriving must have something to do with this Vedic culture, which was which was first uh, you know uh, uh, which first composed those hymns while the river also was thriving, and and uh, Max Müller himself said that the disappearance of the Sarasvati marks the end of the Vedic age. 
That's what Max Weber wrote in the 1860s, the disappearance of the Sarasvati Maps, the end of the Vedic age. It means the age of the Samhitas, all right? So he's very clear on this. So well, we know today that the date is about 1900 BC. So 1900 BC marks the end of the Vedic age in a logical way, according to Max Weber. So, so this is uh, very briefly, uh, how I would put the problem, but you, you can supplement it because you, you are actually more knowledgeable than I am. So um, since in five minutes we have a break, I'll just ask you a question which probably requires a very brief answer. So uh, just like you've elaborated on how the Aryan invasion theory has been mutated beyond recognition, but it's still there. Um, the Saraswati paradigm itself has been questioned or denied now in, in the face of overwhelming evidence. One of the reasons that's now been given to deny that Ghagar was Saraswati, and in, in fact, even noted archeologists like the late Gregory Pozel wrote a paper saying that the Saraswati never reached the ocean. And so the Rig Vedic statement, Agiribhya, Asamudrat, you know, from the mountains to the ocean is just a hyperbole. And the argument he gave was that if you go downstream, there are no Harappan sites on the upper reaches of the Nara River in the northern part of Sindh. But in the last 10 to 15 years, I believe Pakistani archaeologists have actually found close to 150 early Harappan Absolutely. sites. Absolutely. You're right, Vishal. And I've been in touch with some of them, luckily, and I can perhaps, uh, if time permits, I can probably be, uh, find the name of uh, two of them. Uh, it, you are right. Sorry. Dr. Kasid Malla, I believe. Exactly. That was the name I was trying to remember. You, you, you are absolutely right. So they have found on the eastern side of the Rohe Hills, you know, that there are in Sindh, towards the southern end of Choristan, there are a set of low hills called the Rohe Hills, which were actually a source of semi-precious stones and uh, chert for the Harappans. We know that the Harappans were mining them and the Sarasvati would have flowed uh, on the, <clears throat> on the uh, uh, eastern side of, of them. And they have found a lot of sites of Harappan culture. So they are actually closing the gap. And uh, there are also a few even further downstream closer to the run of Kutch. So they are closing the gap. Of course, they don't want to be too emphatic about it uh, because this would actually, you know, uh, reestablish the continuity of the river. Um, it's also difficult to say we need more geological studies in that region. You see, we have now plenty of them. And maybe we can very briefly discuss them later. We have plenty of them in the Haryana Rajasthan region. From the Shivaliks to the Indo-Pakistan border, we have quite a lot of geological studies now with some more coming shortly. Um, so, but in this region of Cholistan and beyond, very few. So we need more sedimentological studies where you know you can date the whole chronology of, of the sediments and, and recreate something more reliable. So um, what we know for sure is that the river had a complex um, history. It, uh, it is not that there was a mighty river flowing all the way, all the time, and then suddenly it disappeared. Uh, the, what Possel said was not wrong. There is a delta 
in Cholistan, and this must be a, a later stage in the evolution of the river, where uh, at some point it weakened. And perhaps it was an arm of the Sutlej that fed the, the sites lower downstream. So there is a complex evolution, no doubt. If you see the ISRO paper, ISRO, uh, the, the, the satellite imagery papers of the uh, Indian Satellite Research Organization, um, you know, they've drawn several beds that they think the river occupied from purely from remote sensing. And obviously the river has shifted considerably in the course of its evolution. There is something like a hundred kilometers shift in the very flat plains of, of uh, well, th that whole region. Uh, so so uh, we, we still, it will take time before we can recreate the entire evolution of the river reliably. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I, it's very interesting that the gap is closing and uh, we have Harappan culture almost all along the Ghagar uh, Hakra bed. It's very interesting. So in conclusion, the drift of the newly emerging data is often that same direction. There is yes. nothing new data which contradicts the Saraswati Vedic Harappan equation. Um, so I think uh, it's time now for a break. Uh, Srinivasji. Uh, yes, yes. So let's have a 10 minute break. And uh, hopefully that's good enough time for getting some breakfast for yourself, Vishal, and maybe some coffee for everybody else. <laughs> Thank you. We'll assemble at 6.40 again. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Everybody can stay on, uh, just uh, mute and switch off the videos and we will just uh, rejoin. Yeah. You can have a look at uh, any questions that are there and compile them. Sure, sure. Yeah.
welcome back uh, professor daninom mish i think there is some uh, shade uh, falling on you um okay that's all right it's all right yeah i think you're still uh, muted yes yeah okay sorry, sorry. so um so shall we resume uh, the session sure yeah sure. i know yeah great to have you back again we uh, probably can uh, continue till about uh, 7:15 maybe right sure. uh, uh, and then we can have some questions uh, yeah. uh, and yeah i was just thinking about it the last two sessions we've had uh, the retrospective prospective sessions were with uh, professor balagangadhara and uh, professor vishwa adluri both of whom were indians who have settled outside india and have become citizens of other countries and today we have you know uh, a non indian who's become a citizen of india and in india is doing fantastic work it's a interesting observation thank you very much professor uh, danino please let's get started <laughs> and i think that's a very pertinent comment because towards the end the whole the overarching theme of this particular panel is you know what makes one an indian and that's what mr danino uh, michel has also written about so uh, that brings me to my next question uh, you know attempts have been made to 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 state or or prove that the vedic culture is very different from the harappan civilization one of the paradigms uh, one of these arguments that and you've written about it recently was they say that the harappan realm was a very peaceful civilization there is no evidence of wars you don't find weapons uh, you don't even find a single a uh, sword uh that you can identify really as a sword whereas the uh the rigveda is a very according to them uh, a very horsey text because it's full of war chariots and horses and uh, indra devta is himself sometimes termed as a rowdy god and he's a very prominent devta a deity in the rigveda in in uh, recently however you have written a very remarkable paper called demilitarizing the rigveda and what you've tried to show there is that a lot of these references are very allegorical so would you like to comment on that you're muted yeah yes thank you thank you thank you vishal thank you i'm glad that you are bringing this point because uh, it touches a very deep issue it touches the whole meaning of the rigveda and we already know that the text was tortured in the 19th century into yielding an aryan race which of course was thrown into the dustbin of history after doing enough harm uh, and the whole nazi ideology was founded on the work of european indologists and linguists this is too often forgotten and but then <clears throat> to my mind the more i look at the rigveda and the more i feel that it continues to be tortured and we still do not look at it um in its plain meaning um <clears throat> what what 
present scholars are trying to extract from the Rig Veda is still a context of war. It's still that people calling themselves Aryans uh, still conquer you know, native populations which are called variously the Basus, the Basas, or the Panis, and so on. And I think this is still text torturing. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm borrowing the phrase text torturing from uh, Troutman, <clears throat> uh, Thomas Troutman, Professor Thomas Troutman, who authored a beautiful book called uh, Aryans and British India, I think. Uh, very important because he demolishes the whole racial uh, interpretation reading of the Rig Veda. He nevertheless goes by the, uh, you know, Aryan or, or Indo-Aryan uh, migration into India for linguistic reasons mostly. This is a good reminder that it's possible to have, you know, there are multiple schools of thought uh, in this whole debate. Um, but I think that the this whole question of what do these battles mean? It is true that there is strong, sometimes violent language in the Rig Veda. That's undeniable. But when does it appear? It appears when those, uh, when we see Indra, as you mentioned, uh, sometimes it is Surya, sometimes it is Agni. It varies, in fact, and it's very, very important to note the, the mutability of, the, of, the, of this light motive. It is one single light motive, taking a lot of shapes, where we see either Indra or Surya or Agni, sometimes Rishis with them, sometimes Rishis alone, going and smashing the, um, uh, the, 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 the caves or let us say the dens, the hidden places of the Dasyus, sometimes the Panis, at the foot of mountains. <clears throat> and so this is one central aspect. And in fact, to me, this is the central theme, the central leitmotiv. There are other very important things in the Rig Veda, but this one comes through and I want one day to find time to publish a study on this theme alone. I want to count, I'm sure it comes at least 50 times in the entire Rig Veda, scattered in all the books, all the mandalas, um, and, and certainly uh, this is a very central preoccupation, this going and smashing of the fortresses, the strong places, the poors of the, uh, what is called poor in, in Rig Veda, of, of those Dasyus. So what are those poor? Of course, the poor were interpreted as cities and they became the Harappan cities because there are no other cities that would match um, the word poor, but we have very important papers, uh, one by Erdosi, George Erdosi, another one by um, uh, our friend Nicolas Kazanas, who show that this concept of poor is not a city as we understand it. It is a protective place. It's, it's a place, it's a strong place of defense, of protection, and it's not as if only the Dasyus have pools, the so-called Aryans also have. The ones who are on the side of the gods also are. And the gods themselves are sometimes compared to poor. Even Sarasvati, the river, is also a poor at some point. So it's a concept of protection. It's a concept of occult defense. 
It has nothing to do with a proper city as we understand it. So therefore, what are these and why is it that the result of this campaign, this uh, apparently military campaign against the Dasus or the Pamis and the smashing of their uh, secret places and it is always the smashing of the mountain. The mountain is split asunder by either mantras or by um, Indra's Vajra or by some, some other weapons, but the mountain is split asunder. So there are, there are endless variations of this light motif. It varies and varies and it is retold in different, with different names, but it's always the same story. And what happens is that when the mountain is shattered and the caves are exposed, then a lot of different things happen, which again are one and the same. Either cows are released, or sometimes, and I've given a lot of references in, in that paper, but I hope one day to go back to it in greater detail. Or cows and horses are released because sometimes they are keeping cows and horses, those Dasus, even though we are told that the horse is Aryan, we find a lot of horses with the Dasus, with the bunnies explicitly. And this is never commented upon, of course, uh, by, by our uh, invasionists or migrationists. And we find that sometimes also instead of cows, we find treasures being released or we find rivers being released. Or sometimes once I think we find the sun, the eighth sun, hidden sun, Matanda being released. So something is released and it can be a river, it can be cows, it can be horses, it can be treasures, it can be all of that. What Sri Aurobindo, and this, of course, I accept fully that I'm totally influenced by Sri Aurobindo's reading of the Rigveda, which was not based on any intellectual exercise. It was actually, for him, a spiritual um, discovery because he was going through certain experiences in his physical body, which were beyond the usual spiritual realizations, and he could not find an explanation for them in, let us say, the Upanishads or, or you know, the, the classical texts. Uh, those realizations he had, he had had before. But when certain phenomena started appearing, powers arising in his body and certain barriers being smashed and so on, and he read the Rig Veda in Pondicherry, in the original Sanskrit, uh, partly self-taught, <clears throat> he found that this was a perfect symbol of the experiences he was going through. So people consider, and this was one blame I got after uh, you know my paper was circulated recently. Uh, somebody said, you know, Shermindo was a, uh, <clears throat> a man of his a product of his times. Well, maybe in some respects I do not know, but not in this respect. He was not following any given interpretation. He found Sayana disappointing because Sayana, his main reproach to Sayana, the medieval commentator of, on the Rigveda, was that certain keywords for him had a constant range of meaning throughout the Rigveda. The Sayana did not respect that. And one keyword could be sometimes a river, sometimes heaven, sometimes sacrifice, sometimes something else. And there was no thread which allowed a, a certain consistency in the Rigveda. This was his main reproach, which actually he's not the only one to have made. Right, so, 
So now coming back to your question, and I'm sorry I'm taking a lot of time, but I think it is very central. We have to revisit the, the Vela, and I found that especially this question of the horse and the chariot. And we are told, you know, Aryans, everybody says Aryans introduced the horse and the chariot in India. Of course, I will not go into the controversy of horse bones have been, having been found in the Harappan uh, civilization and certified by very competent archaeozoologists. Uh, but that, let's keep that apart. But we are told that the, 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 the text is emphatic about the, the chariot technology imported into India and, and horses, and this, is, and this is how the Aryans came into India. And when you look at it closely, there is nothing of the kind. For example, they, they're supposed to have come with spoked wheel chariots. They're supposed to have introduced this technology. Again, there's a debate whether Harappans knew the spoked wheel or not. We, we can keep that aside. The point is that in the Veda, I found that not in a single passage were the spoked wheel, the chariot, and the horse together. The chariot, Ratha, and it has many other names, as you know, the horse, Ashwa, <clears throat> which is, they are all using all kinds of allegories in exploding meanings, which you have to th kind of thread together, and that's what I attempted to do in my paper, <clears throat> because there is a consistency, but the consistency doesn't work with, with the military interpretation. It works with the, the energy uh, of, the, of the conquest of the Dasyus and Panis. It works with recovering powers from them because the Panis, for example, remember the beautiful dialogue between Salama uh, and the emissary of Indra and the Panis <clears throat> where she says, you are keeping all these cows and horses and treasures, and my master Indra is going to come and smash, and because you are not using them according to Ritam. Ritam is the cosmic order. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but this is the gist of that dialogue, and therefore they do have powers, and they have, I mean, which are symbolized by horses and cows, and they have riches, and the objective of the Vedic quest, the Rig Vedic quest is to recover these. Now, if you transpose this to the Puranas, it's pretty much the same in a very different language, of course, but you have battles between the Devas and the Asuras. And the Asuras often also have treasures and uh, <clears throat> they will have, you know, uh, <clears throat> their cities, you know, Tripura Sundari is the name of Shiva. Shiva destroying the cities of the Asuras. We have actually a transposition of the Vedic theme, but put in a story form. It's something which is very different, but the whole root symbolism remains the same. And nobody is going to say that, you know, um, the Devas were a race of invaders uh, who subjugated the, the uh, Asura population of India. Nobody would say that, of course. So why do we say it in the context of the Rig Veda, where actually the imagery, the symbolism, is, is, is just saying it's, it's a complete parallel. So this is, what, in a nutshell, what I have tried to argue. There would be a lot more to say. But, I, but my conclusion is Rig Veda is a text which is still being tortured. We're not allowing it to reveal its 
fairly plain meaning. Karen Thompson, as you know, uh, a very respected and highly competent veticist, uh, has actually challenged the entire school, recent schools of, of Vedic scholars, saying you are misinterpreting the Rig Veda, you're not allowing the meaning to come forth. And though she has not fully elaborated her whole, her whole reading of the Rig Veda, and here and there I have some criticism to make, but by and large, I find that her foundation is much healthier, that she says we must allow this text to speak for itself and stop uh, imposing on it, and she's very explicit on this, this military context, this, this chariot and this portrait, none of it is working. So it's time to go back to the text and, and, and look at it afresh. So I, I, I very much uh, am in tune with this and I think uh, we, we have to, uh, now in India, the difficulty will be to move away from the ritual schools from Mimansa, at least for some time. We have to do this exercise. And then we can go back and maybe the Mimansa schools can be also looked at differently. I do not know because I have no expertise in, in that field. But uh, I think that Rig Veda, we have to remember one thing, and I'll stop with this, that very soon after the, the Samhita period, it was acknowledged that Rig Veda was no longer understood. If we read Yaska, the Nighantu, Nirukta of Yaska, his attempt to recover the lost meaning of words from the Rig Veda, from the Samhitas. You know how Yaska begins. He says, he quotes those Vedic scholars of his time, and Yaska was perhaps 800 BC, nobody really knows, but about that time, certainly pre Paninian. And, and Yaska quotes those Vedic scholars who said, don't even try to find any meaning in, in, in the Vedas. There is no meaning. You know, these are useless texts. So he, Yaska quotes them. You know, it's so interesting that first of all, the, the intellectual freedom, which that reflects the kind of dissent you could, you could voice. First of all, that's an aside, but nevertheless. And secondly, the fact that already in Yaska's time, People could say there's no meaning in the Rig Veda. We don't, don't even try. So, so Yaska acknowledges that a lot of words have mutated, that the, the, the meaning has shifted, and he tries to, as you know, rebuild some of the vocabulary, lost vocabulary of the, the Rig Veda. So, so therefore, there should be no dispute on the fact that there is a, a disappearance, like the Sarasvati disappeared, <laughs> the, 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 the some, something of the Vedic quest uh, and its uh, uh, motivation, its objective, also was perhaps lost, and um, and we, we have to go back to it and at least do justice and retrieve this text from this uh, constant torture. I have to stop here. Okay.